It's a great joy to be with you. Uh, I've missed you the last couple of weeks, thanking the Lord for Brian Herring's wonderful message. Mike Veets last week, what tremendous feasts were afforded this congregation in their, in their ministry. But it is a joy to let you know we drove down, um, whole family, you know, Monday through the day, through torrential rain in central Florida a couple of times. Thanks so much for that gracious welcome. And uh, we got in late Monday night about 11 o'clock, but uh, Tony's right there and Anna's right there and we're here and thrilled to be here, I can tell you. So we're very, very grateful for your prayers. Thank you so much. And uh, the adventure of unpacking begins in earnest this next week. Uh, the moving van shows up in the driveway tomorrow. So it'll be like Christmas for months at end. Anyway, looking forward to that. If you're new with us today, my name is David Cassidy, and I'm the lead pastor here at Spanish River Church. And it's a joy to be with you. And I welcome you, and thank you for that. Um, we've been in Matthew's Gospel since last December, and our intention in studying this Gospel together has been not only to get information, so to speak, about who Jesus is, but to have an impartation of his life so that we have transformation of our own hearts. And one of Matthew's intents is to help us understand not only the identity of Jesus, but to get a glimpse of the heart of Christ. If you look at modern or ancient biographies, and this sets the Gospels apart from being standard operating procedure biographies, there would always be some part of the story that says that the subject of the biography was five foot ten and um, had this color hair and this color eyes and this set of chin and this shaped nose, but none of the Gospels give us that kind of visible portrait of Jesus. Instead, what they do is rather than focusing on the externals, they open up to us the internals, the heart of who Christ is. And the reason that they do that is because Jesus, in becoming one of us, God, the second person of the Trinity, adding humanity to his deity and becoming one of us to save us, does this not to leave us as we are, but to transform us so that we become as he is. He became as we are to make us as he is. And the Apostle John, writing years later, would say, it is not yet appeared what we will be, but we know that when he comes, we will be like him. And all Christians long for the day when our internals match his internals. How many of you know we got a long way to go? But Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 25. He said, it is enough... It is enough that the servant become like his master. And so God saves us not only to forgive us and grant us the gift of eternal life that we sang of this morning, but to transform us and restore in us the image of God that was defaced and vandalized and spoiled by our rebellion against the Lord in Eden. So Jesus comes 
to save and to change us. And he's at work by his spirit and word to accomplish that. And one of the amazing things in Matthew's gospel is that Jesus, having said it's enough for the servant to become as his master, then here in Matthew chapter 20, where I invite you to turn this morning, turns the tables in one of the most remarkable statements ever uttered on the planet. And I say that without any sense of hyperbole or exaggeration. He said in this text that we're going to read today that the master becomes a servant in order to liberate the servants so that they become like him. The master becomes a servant. He becomes like us. And so this remarkable text in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, I want to draw it to your attention this morning. Let's read it together. And I want you to notice the word great. I'll make a couple of comments as we go along. Now, what's happened here in this text is Jesus has just said to his disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem. And when we get there, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be put on trial. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. So he's gone through all of that. It's gone right over their heads. And a different concern belongs to the disciples. They are not concerned about Jesus' impending death, the wonder of his resurrection. They have something else in mind because he's been talking to them about the kingdom, and their idea of the kingdom means that not only is he going to have a throne, but they get one too. Matthew 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now notice the next word, they, not she, they. In other words, when mom came up and said, Jesus, I just have a little something to ask of you. What do you want? And she said, just a couple of thrones, that's all. A couple of thrones for the boys. Jesus knows that this request did not originate with her. That's in the cowardly heart of James and John. And they're like, we should get thrones. Yeah, one on the right, one on the left. That'd be a good deal. But that sounds really wicked if we ask, let's send mom. <laughs> so they send her. Jesus just scoots right past it and he looks directly at the boys. That's why it says they. And so he said, they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you, James and John, will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard it, the other ten disciples, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, of course, they're indignant because <laughs> they're alarmed at the lack of humility in, the, in, their, in their fellow disciples, aren't they? no. No, they're indignant because these guys are jumping the queue. Uh, they wanted to get in line for a couple of thrones as well, and how dare they get ahead of them with a request? Jesus, of course, sees through all of this, and he calls them all to himself, and he says, 
I want to draw a contrast for you. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their, here's the word, great ones, exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. You are not here asking for thrones. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as, even as, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the gospel of the Lord. Won't you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your great goodness to us. We thank you for your word, which is precious to us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who inspired Matthew to write these words. We pray that same Holy Spirit who is with us now would inscribe those words on our hearts and transform us so that our hearts begin to reflect the heart of Christ. And we thank you for this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So the word goat in athletic competition was, for most of my entire life, used to refer to the person who blew it, the person who, who uh, missed the shot at the end of the game that would have won it, the person who gave the errant pass that went out of bounds that, that cost a team a game, the person who fumbled at the goal line, and so the winning touchdown wasn't scored. But in, in 2016, the use of the term GOAT was changed, and it happened on the cover of Sports Illustrated when my beloved Chicago Cubs finally, after a hundred years, anybody can have a bad century, um, won the World Series. And on the cover of Sports Illustrated was Anthony Rizzo from down the street in Parkland. And uh, he's there and it says, the new goat. But goat now meant greatest of all time. And ever since then, that usage of the term has been in our vocabulary. A few weeks ago, the F1 race took place in Miami for the first time. What a stupendous event that was with all the glitterati, all the celebrities, all the high achievers, the high enders coming in from all over the world for this remarkable auto race just a few miles down the road. And one of the photos from that event from Pitt Lane was a picture of seven-time world champion goat Lewis Hamilton and I know that name rings a bell for the vast majority of you, being giant F1 fans that you are. Lewis Hamilton standing there with the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan, with the greatest, perhaps, quarterback of all time, Tom Brady, seven-time world champion Tom Brady, and, and uh, debatedly uh, the greatest soccer player of his generation, David Beckham. Most people from Brazil, again, dispute this uh, This This is... Ascription. But it was, the picture went viral, all of these goats together under the heading, Herd of Goats. <laughs> they were the greatest. Well, a few weeks ago, we were having lunch. And uh, at lunch, uh, sitting there, uh, David, our, our, our friend, uh, 
looked over and he said, I think that's Michael Jordan over there. And now, having spent several years in Nashville, you follow Nashville rules, you don't look. You don't speak. I mean, if you bump into Luke Bryant in Home Depot, you just leave him alone. That's what you do. Oh, it's just Miley Cyrus in a furniture store. You leave her alone. You don't, you don't, you don't ask her for an autograph, you know, any of that. But, 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 but David said to Anna, David said to Anna, I'm going to act like I'm taking your picture. <laughs> just sit right here. And so she's smiling, and he just goes like this. <laughs> so he could get the picture. And then he showed me the picture. I go, oh, yeah, MJ. MJ, he's the greatest. We're having lunch with the goat, with the greatest. And I'm like, yeah, us and a couple hundred other people, but okay. It was a stunning moment. It was kind of fun. It was sort of great. And everybody around the place was conscious of the fact that a, a goat was among us. But nobody ever thought about the people who were bringing the salads and the iced teas and the, and the entrees and setting them on the table, the servants in the room. Nobody ever looked at them and went, there's one of the greatest. You're the greatest. And the reason for that is because we continue to have a definition of greatness which is actually rooted in our achievement and in merit rather than in humility and in service in the values of the kingdom. And it's one of the fundamental things that has to change in us. Otherwise, here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna keep thinking that if we can just get our hands on a throne, if we can just achieve at the highest level or get a hold of the levers of power, then the world will change or will change, our families will change. But in fact, it's exactly the opposite. And it's so radical. It involves human nature, God's nature, and the nature of Christ's work. Let me just talk about those three things very briefly with you. Human nature, God's nature, and the nature of Christ's work to save us. Here's the first thing about human nature. Lord, here's what I'd like. I'd like for you to give my sons a couple of thrones. And we laugh at the request. We understand the impulse is selfish, it's egocentric, it's narcissistic, it was misguided. But here's the thing, there's a reason it's misguided. And it's because of something that's happened in our human story that has perverted and broken something for which we were made and destined. You see, friends, you were made for a throne. You have a head that is already fitted for a crown. Listen to that. A crown. When Paul is about to die in 2 Timothy, he says, I know the Lord will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom, and he will give me the crown of life. And not just to me, but to everyone who loves his appearing. You are going to be crowned in heaven. And this goes back to the very shape of human nature. You see, the fundamental aspect of what it means to be human is this. You are made in God's image. Every single human being on the planet, no matter their race, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their economic status, no matter where they are, they are fashioned in God's image. In the very beginning, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them 
rule. And then he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, take dominion. But of course, what Adam and Eve did is forfeit their crown and their rule. They gave it up. They gave it up and they laid it down at the feet of the creature that was speaking to them, lying to them, deceiving them, saying, there's a higher throne you can get your hands on. God's holding out on you. If you will eat from this, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you can have a throne as high as God's. You don't have to have a throne that's just below him. But that is our fundamental nature. We were made for a crown. We were made to rule. Psalm 8. The psalmist says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the stars, all that is there in the heavens, the, the billions of stars and the millions of galaxies. And then I look at us, I go, what is man? Who are we that you are mindful of us, that we even occur to you? But you have made us just a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor. But we took our crowns, friends, we took our crowns, we took them off and we laid them at the feet of the serpent. And ever, ever since that moment, we've been trying to find our way back to a throne. I would just like a couple of thrones for the boys, Lord. And he says, you don't understand what you're asking for. He had just finished talking about, he had just finished talking about the cross. And then he revealed something about his nature, about God's nature that speaks to our nature. You see, we were made for a throne, we were made for a crown, but then we were despoiled by our sin and our rebellion so that we are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, by nature, children of wrath. So we have these competing impulses in our hearts. We know that we were made for greatness. We know that we were made for a throne. We know that we were made for a crown. And that impulse in us, because of sin, manifests itself in arrogant pride. All of us, here, as we're growing up, you can be the best. You can be the greatest. You can be in the National Honor Society. You can get the scholarship. You can be the person who's the captain of the team. You can be the richest. You can be the most powerful. Every mom says to her child, you can be anything you want. Just go for the top. And we take that ethic into our workplaces, and we, we will get as high as we can, trouncing down as many people as it takes to be at the top of the pile because we want the throne, we want the crown, and we don't care who we kill to get there. We'll get the most, even if it costs us our family. It doesn't matter, because we gotta get to the top. But God's nature then enters into this scene where we have become perverted by sin. And it's seen in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, when Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That language, son of man, is critical. In Daniel chapter 7, that's where that language is from. It describes the one who reigns and rules over the whole creation. It says, the son of man came up before the ancient of days, and to him was given a throne, dominion, power, that he should rule over all things. The son of man is a ruling, reigning figure. And in the understanding of the people 
of Jesus' generation, the Messiah is the Son of Man. He's the one who's going to come and defeat all the enemies. He's going to conquer everything. He's going to cast out the darkness. He's going to overthrow all wickedness and evil. He's going to set up the kingdom. The Son of Man has come to rule and to reign. The Son of Man is coming. But listen to what Jesus did with their theology. He said the Son of Man, the one who has all the power, all the authority, all the rule, all the might, has not come to be served, but to what? Serve. Wait a minute, what, what, what? Kings don't serve. Kings are served. Kings don't stoop to wash feet. No, kings have slaves that wash their feet. But this king, this king is a different kind of king. This ruler is a different kind of ruler. And Jesus said that's why the Gentile idea of ruling, of getting to the top, it cannot be like that for you. That's not who I am. I'm the son of man, but I'm among you as one who serves. And then he quotes Isaiah 53. To give my life as a ransom for many. He comes as a servant to give his life as a ransom. I want you to hear that. That's Isaiah 53, the servant song of Isaiah 53, where it says that he offers his soul, the one who is the lamb who before his shearers is silent, the one who takes the, the stroke that was due to us and he bears it, the one by whose stripes we are healed. That servant in Isaiah 53, it says he gives his soul as a ransom. There were rabbis in Jesus' day who thought there must be two kinds of messiahs, maybe two messiahs, the ruling, reigning son of man, mighty messiah, and this serving, dying, substituting messiah who gives his life as a ransom. But Jesus, this had never happened before anywhere in theology, anywhere in history. Jesus takes son of man, ruling and reigning, and servant, dying and giving his life, and he combines them and he says, I'm both in one person. The one who reigns is the one who serves. The one who lives forever is the one who dies for you. What does greatness look like? Well, it looks like achievement. It looks like getting to the top. No, in the economy of the kingdom, it looks not like walking into a room strutting like a king. It looks like stooping, bowing. Jesus did this with his disciples. A few days after this, they gathered in an upper room. Jesus had prepared the table for them. And as the disciples walk in, dirty and dusty after a long day, Jesus strips himself down and girds himself with a with a towel, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter, Peter's embarrassed. You see, one of those guys, one of those guys should have been at least going, you know, there's no, but there's no foot washers here. Somebody didn't plan this very well. No one here to wash our feet. And, but none of them looked at each other and went, well, I'll just do it. No, because they're all too good for it. And so what happens? They recline at table. Now, remember, they're not sitting at a table. They're reclining. Their feet are out back here. Okay, they're back here. So they've got a, their head up here at the table. Their feet are back here. Suddenly, they feel somebody washing their feet. And Peter looks back. Who is it? It's God washing his feet. That's all. Just God. 
And Peter goes, what are you doing? What are you doing? I should be washing your feet. Stop that. Peter pulls his feet up. You're not washing my feet anymore. And Jesus looks at him and he says, he looks at him and he says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Peter says, well, don't stop with my feet then. Get my head too. Don't stop. Every one of us need to be washed by the servant. Every one of us. By the servant of God. Who's the servant? The son of man. Who did not come to put a scepter out and say, I'll give you a throne. He came to be a servant. And that's what it is about the work of Christ. You see, the work of Christ, he described it this way, a ransom, a ransom. It's a word that Paul picks up on in Romans chapter 3, where he says the blood of Christ is the ransom price for our redemption. He says it's the blood that Jesus shed. It's the word that was used in the ancient world for liberating slaves. If someone had resource, if somebody had access, they could take money and go down to the market, and if they saw a slave, they could buy that slavery, that slave out of slavery. They could get them free. The most amazing thing in history is that Christ, in order to free us from our slavery to sin and death, comes into the world not as a king to purchase us, but as a slave himself. And he dies on the cross, a slave's death. The cross was a death that was reserved for people who were not Roman. The Romans crucified people, but never a Roman. And they crucified primarily slaves. He died a slave's death. And that's why when James and John, when the mother came to Jesus and said, I want you to I want you to put my son right, my son's on your right and on your left, a couple of thrones. Jesus said, those places are already taken. Because the throne of Jesus is a cross-shaped throne. And when they hung the king on the cross, what was the sign on the cross that Pilate put there? The king. Here's your throne. There were crosses. There were other crosses, weren't there? One on the, and one on the, and those places were reserved for others. And they hung there. Because, friends, we can't save ourselves. You can't hang on a cross. Our lives weren't perfect. We can't pay the price for our sins. Our blood is not spotless. It takes someone else to save us. We cannot save ourselves. We must have a Savior. We are so proud that we still think we can somehow achieve enough to get to the top and come to the throne. But let me tell you, friends, there is a throne for you. The Bible says there is something called the throne of grace. And it says because of the blood that Jesus shed, you and I can come near to the throne of grace. Come to the throne of grace where you will find mercy to help in your time of need. My friends, the king of the cosmos became the slave of all to shed his blood and save us. And in doing so, he put true greatness in you. Because if Christ is in you, listen to me, the goat is in you. But what does that greatness look like? 
It means that tomorrow when you walk into the office, you don't walk in going, hey, the greatest has arrived. (laughs) No, no, no. You walk in with the true great one in you who is a servant. And you look around and you go, how can I bring goodness and kindness to my neighborhood, to my world? How can I bring foot washing to the people I work with? How can I seek the good of my city? How can I seek the good of the people I work with? How can I seek the good of my fellow students at the university? And suddenly they discover something about you. Wow, wow, you're not trying to trample on people. Wow, you're not trying to cuss everybody. Wow, you're not a critic. You're not a gossip. You're not trying to get to the top by beating everybody down. What is it about you that's different? And you can say, greater is he that's in me. Because it isn't me, but Jesus has changed me. My friends, the servant of servants lives in you. And he will change your heart to show his serving ministry to the world. And you know what happens when people are washed by Jesus? When people are washed by Jesus, they become kings. They are fitted for crowns. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for all those this morning who need to be reminded that they have been served by the Savior, washed by him. We cannot wash ourselves. So for those here this morning still laboring under the illusion that they can save themselves, that somehow they can merit grace, would you please disavow them of that false notion and bring them to a deeper place of understanding where they simply say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, have mercy on me. Help them to say with Peter, wash my feet and don't stop there. Wash me, Jesus. Wash me, Savior. With your precious blood, with your ransoming blood, wash me that I might be yours now and forever. And Lord, for each of us where our hearts remain proud, for we are a prideful people, where we remain self-sufficient and arrogant, unforgiving and unmerciful, where we are always concerned about what everybody else thinks about us instead of simply thinking about everybody else and how we might bring you to them. Lord, would you so work in us that the serving heart of Jesus is formed in us and we ask this in your matchless and mighty name. Amen. Let's all stand together and worship the servant king who gave his blood to redeem us. Amen? Thanks be to God.